Proverbs chapter 10, beginning in verse 1, and I'm going to read five verses here this morning. The Proverbs of Solomon. A wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother. Treasures gained by wickedness do not profit, but righteousness delivers from death. The Lord does not let the righteous go hungry, but he thwarts the craving of the wicked. A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. He who gathers in summer is a prudent son, but he who sleeps in harvest is a son who brings shame. This is the last week we're going to spend considering some implications of the resurrection. You remember um, Easter Sunday was now, I think, five weeks ago, five-ish weeks ago, four or five weeks ago. Um, And since then, we've been spending time thinking about the implications of the resurrection of Jesus and how that shapes how we live. Jesus is alive. And this is good news, not just on Easter Sunday, but every Sunday, every Sunday and every day, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday as well. This is true, and it's real, and it is good news. And the eternal life that we have, the eternal life that is a possession that we have, hinges on the reality of the bodily, historical resurrection of Jesus Christ. To claim that we, as people, have eternal life, but Jesus is still in the grave, is foolishness. Scripture is clear on this point. Without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we will not be raised on the last day. We will not receive an immortal body to match the immortal soul that we have in Christ. But Jesus is raised from the dead. And so the new life that he gives us in Christ, a free gift of salvation that comes to us through Jesus Christ, through his sacrificial death, his burial, and his resurrection, we now as God's people who have trusted Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins have new life in him and will then on the last day receive an immortal body to match the immortal soul that we have been, we have been given. Jesus gives us new life. And again, that's not just a future promise. It is a current reality for everyone who is trusted in the name of Jesus. It is a current reality. The life that you have right now in Christ will go on forever. Your current body has an expiration date, but your soul doesn't. And in Christ, you will live forever. Not in disembodied state, not floating somewhere out in the ether with clouds passing you by in a harp in your hand, but with a perfect body that will be raised in the last day. The eternity is a very physical place. Eternity is not less physical than what we are experiencing now this morning. The Bible is clear that we will have a physical body. We are whole beings created by a God to reflect Him wholly, entirely. We will have a perfect body raised on the last day, and we will follow in the footsteps of our elder sibling, Jesus Christ the one who went before us into the grave, and the one who will come out before us. And he is now the king of the universe. So far, in the three weeks that we've been thinking about these things, we've considered two things, three weeks, two things. The relationships, the first thing is this, the relationships that we have within the local church, and the reality that the relationships that we have here are relationships that will extend into the future forever. 
with the others here who are in Christ. And the nature then, last week we explored the nature of God's word that is also alive and accomplishes its purposes in us as individuals and together as a church. So we've focused on two eternal things, that the newness of Christ, the, the newness that Christ gives us and that is guaranteed to us in the resurrection will continue forever. The relationships that we have here, the community that we possess as a local church, and also the, uh, the word of God, which is living and active, which will not fade, which will not go away like the grass of the field, or the flowers of the field, but will endure forever. Both of those things, again, are eternal and guaranteed to never go away because of the resurrection of Jesus. It's what we see clearly in the resurrection. When we look at the resurrection in, in, in Scripture, we see that it guarantees the eternality of our souls and the eternality of God's Word. But everything that we see here this morning, with the exception of the people around us, their souls, will we'll pass away. The words of God before us will last forever, but, but these books that we see that contain them will go away. One day they will die or disintegrate or decay or disappear. Everything except for God, for his word, and for his people, the souls of people, they will all go away. So I hope, I hope this is leading you to ask a question. What, what's with all this stuff around us then? Like why did bo- God bother to give us all of these things around us? If we understand that we should invest in eternal things, then what, what's going on with the things here? The pews and the carpet and the fans and the sun. What's with all of that stuff? Why? Maybe that's a bit more philosophical than you'd hope to be this morning, but I want to tell you that there's a pretty clear answer. And here's the answer that Scripture gives time and time again to the reality of the physical world that we live in, the one that's going to go away and be replaced by one that's eternal. The one that's around us right now, though, the temporary things of this world, God created these temporary things so that mankind could reflect the wisdom of God, thereby glorifying Him. Hence, we're in the Proverbs again, because the Proverbs are wisdom sayings. They're practical application of God's word to daily life. They help us to learn and to live wisely and to help teach wise, godly, biblical wise living to our children and to others. And so here it is again. This is what I'm going to say. This is what all this sort of hinges on this morning. The connection point to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're going to build on this a little bit as we go throughout these Proverbs here, but the temporary things of this world were created so that mankind could reflect the wisdom of God, thereby glorifying him. Again, the temporary things of this world were created so that that mankind could reflect the wisdom of God, thereby glorifying him. So, that means that everything around us, everything that we see in this place, from this building to the things in your own home, those things are given to us as a means to an end. Not as an end themselves, but as a means to an end. And the means is to reflect godly wisdom to the world at large. I think this is going to make more sense as we work our way through these Proverbs. Okay, 
So let's look at these five verses, and we're just going to walk through each one, and they sort of work themselves out in a little section here. Sometimes when we approach the Proverbs, uh, we see these little sayings and snippets and sort of take them independent from one another, but the truth is that these five verses here, these five Proverbs, are designed to be taken as a unit. They're designed to be taken together. Um, So, uh, right at the beginning, in verse 1, Solomon, Solomon is identified as the one who writes these Proverbs. He writes, a wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother. This is the setup for verses 2 through 3 and verses uh, 4 and 5. Verse 1 tells us that wise kids make their parents glad and foolish ones make their kids sad. That's not hard for us to understand. But Solomon's ordering here is important. And as we go through these, the rest of the, these, four, these five verses, you're going to see that that's designed, what's contained here is designed to show us what a, foolish, or what a wise son looks like and what a foolish son looks like. Verse 1 tells us that wise kids make their parents glad and foolish ones make their parents sad. And that's sort of the heart of the matter. That's the takeaway from verse 1. And again, that's not hard for us to get our heads around. Wise son, glad father. Foolish son, sorrowful mother. The, the ordering here is important, though. It's sort of this poetic device where it's like, hey, we talk about the dad and then we talk about the mom. But I think Solomon actually had, uh, had the order in mind when he was saying this. Because dads, if you're a dad in here, whether your children are three, then three or four or five or 40 or 50 or 60, um, dads, this is an outlining of the unique responsibility that we have for educating our children, no matter their age. Dads are designed, God gave us fathers and God gave us children in order to have this discipleship teaching relationship with our children. It's assumed here that both parents are actively instructing their children, um, but the Proverbs are Solomon. If you'll remember at the beginning of Proverbs, if you've read the book of Proverbs, you'll remember that it's set up by telling us that it is Solomon who is instructing his own son in the ways of godly wisdom. So dads, the design here is that we need to care deeply about the education of our children, and oversee it at every stage, again, for our three-year-olds, our pre-kindergarten kids, and for our 50-year-old children um, as they navigate that stage of their life. Any stage that we find ourselves in until our fathers are gone, we are to learn from our fathers. This is one way that we honor our parents, specifically our fathers, is to put ourselves in a position of learning underneath them. So at every stage, fathers are to care deeply about the the education of their children and oversee it. Use that word education, and we just think like school. But I'm talking about life. We're talking about the realities of what it means to understand how God designed us and what it means for us to live in godly, godly wisdom. Dads care deeply about the education of their children. And why? Because Solomon, in his scripture as a whole, assumes that the man is the head of his household, that he sets the pace and the direction for his home. He is responsible to God for everything that happens under his, his roof. 
and under his headship. Therefore, the Bible is clear, passivity is not an option. Men, passivity in your homes is not an option. Passivity is not an option. You will be held responsible for what goes on in your home, what your kids are taught, whether you choose to be ignorant or not. And so education then is discipleship. It's, if you want to disciple your kids, like the folks who stood up here last week when we did our parent-child dedication, if we want to disciple our kids like those people pledged to, um, then take a deep interest and responsibility in the discipleship and education of your children. Engaging them when they're learning things at school, like math and like English and like science and like reading, but not just sprinkling God and the Bible in from time to time, but showing that God is the sole source of the truths that they're learning. And when they're taught things that are not truth, correcting them and admonishing them in godly wisdom, not in worldly wisdom. Um, The Greek philosopher Plato in the Republic says, the object of education is to teach us to love what is beautiful. The object of education is to teach us to love... Plato didn't know the creator God. He didn't. But by some common grace, he communicates to us what God communicates about education and discipleship. Dads, our kids must know what is truth and good and right and beautiful and honorable and holy. And it starts with us teaching them in the home who God is. We cannot, our kids can't know what is beautiful if they don't know the one who created all things. If they don't know the one who defines beauty within his person. We must, we must teach them diligently and take full responsibility for everything that they are learning. So wise dads, this is how this starts out. Wise dads are happy when their kids act wisely. It's a father who fails, but a father who fails to pass wisdom to his children, we learn also burdens his wife. This is not just a commentary on sons and how your children act, but how we as parents engage with our children. A wise son makes a glad father. That statement assumes that the father has taught his son wisdom. A wise son makes a glad father, but a father who fails to teach His son, wisdom, burdens his wife as well. It makes her feel sorrowful when her son, when her children act foolishly. Now, kids are ultimately responsible for their actions when they're grown. And even the wisest parents find themselves wondering why their children are acting foolishly as adults. But it is foolish as a father to not pass wisdom onto your son and then wonder why your son is acting foolishly. That's the wisdom of Solomon. We can't say, no one taught me how to be wise and I turned out just fine. That's not a formula for effective fatherhood. So in verse 1, introduces us to a wise son and then he sets up verses 2 through 5. How do sons, or we could say children, let's just say children here. How do children live wisely? Wise children live wisely by living righteously through working diligently and acting prudently. In these things, they, those children, reflect the wisdom of God and they are to learn the wisdom of God from their parents. 
So you remember that statement that we made right out of the gate about the temporary things that we see around us and wise, right use of those things. God gives us all of these things in the world that will ultimately go away. There are things around us that, that will last forever, the souls of people and God's word. But the things around us, the temporary things of this world were created so that mankind could reflect the wisdom of God by living righteously through working diligently and prudently. So wisdom is making use of God-given temporary resources in the way God tells us to. Let me say that again. Wisdom is making use of God-given temporary resources in the way that God tells us to. Leveraging and investing those temporary things with eternity in mind. Using temporary things for temporary purposes is foolish and destructive. Verses 2 through 5 tells us more. Now, this is where the wisdom component and where it actually starts to take shape for us. So if you're thinking to yourself, wow, okay, so what are we talking about when we talk about godly wisdom? What are we talking about when we're talking about eternal and temporary? How does that actually work itself out? Verses 2 through 5 begins to give us those ideas in, in full. So again, the temporary things of this world were created so that mankind could reflect the wisdom of God by living righteously through working diligently and prudently. So the first thing, reflecting the wisdom of God by living righteously. And we see that in verses 2 and 3. Treasures gained by wickedness do not profit, but righteousness delivers from death. The Lord does not let the righteous go hungry, but he thwarts the, the craving of the, wickedness, of the wicked. So you see in verses 2 and 3 a contrast, right? Those who are righteous and those who are wicked. It is the wise son who lives according to righteousness and is the foolish son that lives according to wickedness. Solomon begins by saying in verse 2 uh, that treasures gained by wickedness do not profit. I got an email this week um, from a 75-year-old British woman named Agnes George. Um, unfortunately, she told me she has a terminal illness, uh, and uh, Agnes has, she has no living, no living relatives. She then told me, get this, that she wants to make me her investment manager. And uh, that she was ready and prepared to send me 10,500,000 United Kingdom pounds. That's about $13 million by the conversion rate. And all I needed to do is send her some really personal information, and she would wire me that money um, straight away. No, no questions asked outside of things like social security and bank account numbers. You, you, know, you know these spam messages. You, you've got several in your spam folder right, right now. Swindling people out of their money and stealing it does not profit. That's what this says. Treasures gained by wickedness do not, do not profit, profit. Now, there's no wisdom in it. And it's not a wise son who swindles and steals because it isn't according to God's word. That's not how we are to make our living, by stealing and swindling from others. God says it right in the Ten Commandments. Shouldn't steal. As a matter of eternity, 
Because in the second half of this proverb, we're told the righteousness delivers from death. Righteousness delivers from death. Now that's where that contrast becomes a little bit strange. Because we're talking about stealing and swindling people out of their money, and then we're talking about, all of a sudden we're talking about delivering from death. But what's being communicated here is to live righteously before God is to live according to his word. And this is an eternal matter. It's not a, okay, if you get around to it or feel like it, it is an eternal matter to live according to God's word, to live righteously. Fools make earthly treasure their goal. It is the wicked who makes earthly treasure their goal and therefore is willing to steal from people by sending spam emails. But wise people, the wise son knows that earthly treasure is given by God and should be used for his purposes and not theirs. So we see Jesus in this passage clearly. We see Jesus as the one who uh, is greater than Solomon. Because in his life, in the example that he lived, he used the resources given to him perfectly in perfect righteousness. He always used the temporary resources that were available to him wisely, with eternity in mind, perfectly reflecting his heavenly Father. Take, for instance, the feeding of the 5,000. Five loaves and two fish, and he miraculously feeds the people. Now, it's a temporary feeding. They're going to get hungry again by dinner time. But he feeds them, and he doesn't just offer them satisfaction from their physical hunger, but at that moment, he offers eternal satisfaction for their spiritual hunger. That can't be satisfied with anything temporary, anything in this world. He uses a temporary resource, points to an eternal need that they have, and gives them the eternal solution himself. Verse 3 in our passage this morning continues that very thought. The Lord does not let the righteous go hungry, but he thwarts the craving of the wicked. Because those who live righteously according to God's word, he makes sure that they're fed. This is faith. But those who make the habit of stealing and swindling, God prevents them from being satisfied. They might have more money in their bank account. But they don't feel satisfied. They don't feel like they have enough. They need more. And when they try to fill it with temporary things, they will only find their satisfaction, or their satisfaction eludes them and is not not met. This is a matter of contentedness. Those who live according to God's commands, those who live righteously, find lasting contentedness. Those who break out from underneath God's order of things by swindling or stealing or seeking eternal satisfaction with temporary things, they don't find contentedness. They are never satisfied. If you find yourself here this morning and you don't feel content with your life right now, there's a good chance that you're trying to fill an eternal an eternal sized hole with a bunch of temporary stuff. You're trying to squeeze that temporary stuff into internal satisfaction and it and it just goes away. And so we click order on Amazon over and over and over again, hoping that the next thing will be the thing. 
Temporary things satisfy temporarily. Eternal things satisfy eternally. So to make our goal the acquisition of temporary things is to live foolishly. And it ensures a life of discontent. You are insured a life of discontent when you make your aim in this life the acquisition of temporary things. This would be the wrong use of the things that God has given to us. To make your aim in this life to live according to God's word and to live righteously, that's what it means to live according to God's word, is to ensure eternal satisfaction. We're talking about righteousness. Talking about righteous living. Um, and if you were to say, this sounds like a righteousness that's earned, that's not what we're talking about. There is an ordering to the righteous living that God calls us to. Because you can't earn God's favor by living righteously, by living according to God's word. You can't do it. In fact, you can't even live according to God's word apart from God himself. Because we were born into sin and we blew it right out of the gate, sinning all the time. But God's free gift of salvation comes to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And while we were still sinners, while we were still running around actively rejecting God, Jesus came into the world sacrificing himself in order that we might be washed clean of our sin and then that his righteousness, his perfect God-honoring life would be credited to us. That transaction that occurs when our sin goes to Jesus on the cross and when his righteousness, his perfect life, according to God's word, comes to us, that unlocks the house. And we can step in and live righteously according to God's word for the first time. So this is only true, what Solomon writes is only true of those who live as those who have received the righteousness of Christ. Righteous living is only possible for those who have the righteousness of Christ. As those who have been set apart for God's purposes through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The righteous living described by Solomon isn't earning you anything. Rather, the righteousness of Jesus credited to you and the new life you have in him has unlocked your ability to please God and walk uprightly and blamelessly before him as a clear evidence of his saving work in your life. The idea though is this. For those who are in Christ, we have received and the eternal realities that are and the eternal things that are given to us now can be used for eternal satisfaction. And we reject the temporary things that, that we seek eternal satisfaction in, knowing that the equation, the math, doesn't work. Temporary things cannot sa- satisfy eternally. Only eternal things satisfy eternally. The, fr- the fool seeks eternal satisfaction in temporary things, leading him to steal and to swindle, or to come about by his wealth in improper ways. The wise person knows that eternal satisfaction is found in eternal things and devotes himself to God's way 
of using temporary things. In verses 4 and 5, though, in Proverbs 10, we understand the practical nature of this. What does it look like to use temporary things in in a way that honors God? What does it look like to use temporary things according to God's word? This is the insight into the way to use all of this stuff that's around us that is going to one day go away, probably sooner rather than later. The way to do that is working in a way that reflects the wisdom of God. So there's two things, that in ver- one in verse 4 and one in verse 5, that shows us what, why, uh, the, how the wise son works with what he's given here, the temporary things that he's given here. Righteous living looks like diligent work and prudent work. So look at verse 4. A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes righteous. So that first idea is diligence. Or excuse me, the slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. Excuse me. The first idea that's contained here is diligence. Righteous living looks like diligent work with the things that are given to us in this temporary, this temporary realm. Uh, so that we might reflect godly wisdom. The first is diligence. So two types of hands described here. Now hands is just a stand-in for these people, right? A slack hand causes poverty. but The hand of the diligent makes righteous. Slack here means lazy or negligent. The diligent hand, though, is attentive. It's thoughtful. It's not hasty. Patient. It is the righteous who are diligent because they know what has been given to them by God and how to properly take care of it is prescribed by God. Right out of the gate in Genesis chapter 1, God says to Adam in the garden, He says, or before He even creates Adam, He says, Let us make man in our image and after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock, over all of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So even in that statement, even before God creates Adam, he, make, he, he gives this, these things to Adam. He gives him his image to reflect him to the world at large and he gives him dominion. He gives him, uh, he gives him char- a charge to care for all of creation. This is our charge as well, that we've inherited. So God tells us to be diligent in our work. He tells us to be attentive, thoughtful, and not hasty. These are the same things that describe God and his, his own work amongst us. But let me tell you where I think we get diligence wrong. We sometimes like to think that diligence is just hard work. But it's not, it's not less than hard work, but it is certainly more. And here's what, what, I, what I would say is being communicated here in Proverbs 10, verse 4. Diligence is hard work done God's way. You can work hard, but not work in God's way. Diligence, though, biblically defined is hard work done God's way. 
And what I mean is that it's hard work that always has God's ways in mind. Something diligence, again, here's a, something that we do where we create sort of these extra components of the definition. Um, diligence is not express the quantity of work. Hard work and lots of work aren't the same. Uh, we do this in the upper Midwest here in North Dakota. We equate the two. If you're not overworking, you're lazy. But the Bible tells us that diligent work and diligent rest are both part of godly wisdom. Working in the way that God commands, but also resting in the way that he commands. Psalm 127.2 says, It is vain that you should rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. You don't earn sleep by overworking. We earn sleep, or sleep is given to us, rather, when we do it God's way. Diligent work is work that recognizes how God made things and how work is to be done within that reality, not outside of that reality. Diligence can be waiting or spacing out the work. There's a component of patience and diligence. I've been framing walls in our our, our home renovation, and when falls, when framing walls, you put a stud every 16 inches, and from center of stud to the next center of the stud. What you don't need to do is put a stud every 8 inches. But the logic of saying that diligent work means lots of work is saying, well, if a stud 16 inches is good, then one every 8 inches is better. No, it's not. Diligent work is good. So more work is more diligence, right? No. Let me give you an example from Jesus' words. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus tells the par- a parable of the sower. Not the one that you're thinking about with the four soils, but one, uh, one of his kingdom parables, where he begins, out, begins the parable by saying, this is Matthew 13, 24, he says, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. The seed that this man sowed um, is sown in the ground, but then Jesus says that his hired hands or his men go to sleep. While they're sleeping, uh, the enemy comes and sows a bunch of weeds amongst their, amongst their, uh, their hard work. The natural thing to do, and assumed by Jesus, is that you sow and you sleep. That you sow and you sleep. The men aren't chastised by their master or by Jesus in this for going to sleep. Instead, Jesus says that the master says, well, let's just wait for it all to come up, and when it does, we'll throw what's bad into the fire and we'll keep what's good at harvest time. The natural thing that is assumed by Jesus in the passage is to work and to wait. This is not laziness. This is diligence according to God's word. Because it's not our way, but God's way. At the heart of diligent work is trust. Do we trust the Lord with our work? Guys, I'm only preaching to myself this morning, by the way. 
At the heart of diligent work is trust. Do we trust the Lord with our work? I've had to ask myself that every single day for like the last six months. Do we trust the Lord with our work? Then the reason we, and I say we, but I mean me, the reason I overwork is because I'm not trusting the Lord to produce results. Maybe you're in the same boat. I'm not trusting God, and so I'm trying to work outside my limits. Maybe you're in the same boat. In Exodus 23:11, God tells his people to sow the land and harvest its yield for six years, and then on the seventh to just let it lie. Don't do anything. Can you imagine taking a whole year off every seven? There are two things that would be required to take a whole year off after working for six. It seems like a pipe dream, and all uh, the internet is telling you how to do this, but it, it doesn't work like this in the world, or at least we think that. It would take two things for obedience. To work for six and to take the year off, to let the field life follow. Proper planning for the first six years. Oh, that says, okay. And a much larger trust in God than we can probably imagine. Because what if in years one through four, things go really well, and you're like, ah, look at these barns, they're full, and we'll have plenty for that year seventh if things keep going this way. And then year five, and year six, it all goes away because of a flood. It all gets destroyed, and your silos and all of your grain bins are gone. What if an extreme drought hits? And you, years five and six produce nothing. What do you do? Do you trust the Lord in year seven? Or do you strike out against him and plant in year seven? It is the Lord. It is the Lord who does not let his righteous go hungry. So the fields lie fallow in the seventh year, regardless of what happens in years one through six. This is not what we believe about our work. We trust our own work for the results. Again, maybe I'm just preaching to myself this morning. But it's the diligent hand that prospers in this life because it does things God's way. Rejecting slackness and laziness and negligence, but not misdefining hard work by saying that it requires overwork. But working faithfully and thoughtfully, attentive to how God commands us to work with the things that God gives us. Diligence is hard work done in God's way. But in verse 5, he uses the word prudent. It is he who gathers in summer is a prudent son, but he who sleeps in harvest is a son who brings shame. If diligence is hard work done God's way, then prudence is hard work done in God's timing. The prudent son takes note of the seasons. The prudent son takes note of the seasons. He knows it's time to go. It's summer, it's time to gather. 
When it's time to harvest, he harvests. The foolish, shameful son sleeps through harvest. Now, I mentioned a moment ago, diligence is working in God's way and resting in God's way. Those two things should both be taken into consideration. So we see the word sleep here, but this is not sleep in God's way. This is not resting in God's way. Because it's not taking note of the season. The time now is to work, God says. And he gives us indicators because the earth is tilted on its axis. The foolish, slameful son sleeps. But it's not the sleep of the righteous who works diligently and rests diligently. Sleep here has the idea of that the son is unconscious of his surroundings. He doesn't even get it. He can't even interpret what's going on outside with the weather. He's so disoriented that he can't make heads or tails of his situation. The timing of our work matters. Plant in spring, harvest in fall. Technology in our world has made work possible in many ways, day and night. But prudence suggests that there's a proper time for work. And so I just want to say, just as the foolish son who sleeps through harvest is the son who tries to harvest in winter. Prudence is hard work done in God's timing. When we understand the seasons that God has designed, and when we know our creator through his word, then we'll understand his timing and operate as prudent children. But before we wrap up, remember where we started in verse 1, thinking about parents and the nature of our work, teaching our children. Parents, you must teach your children to work in God's ways and in God's timing. You must teach your children to trust the Lord with the temporary resources he has given you so that you might reflect his wisdom and glorify him. Some of you may have learned to work outside of God's ways from your parents, being negligent or lazy or overworking, ultimately being attentive, inattentive to God's ways. And some people learn to work outside of God's timing trying to produce results that can only come in a certain season. God's wisdom, though, isn't the wisdom of man. We must strive to do all things in His ways and in His timing. Trust the Lord. It is only a few chapters earlier that we are told in the book of Proverbs to trust in the Lord with all our hearts and not to lean on our own understanding. God gives us clear indicators when it's time to work. He gives us clear indicators when it's time to rest. God gives us clear indicators of how to work, and God gives us clear indicators of how to rest. We want to learn what it means or what it looks like to use the temporary things that God has given to us wisely. And so this is where we started out as we wrap our time together. Where we started out together, the temporary things of this world were created so that man could reflect the wisdom of God by living righteously through working diligently and prudently. And this glorifies our Heavenly Father. It shows that we trust Him. When we use these things well, 
Not making them the end or the aim of our lives. But when we use the temporary things that he's given us well, it shows that we trust God. That we submit to his ways and his timing and his wisdom. Just like though diligence doesn't give us the understanding of quantity of work, it also doesn't, our understanding of temporary things doesn't hinge on the quantity of the things that we have. God is far more concerned with the faithfulness with the things that he has given to us than how much we have or how little we have. Using temporary things wisely, whether you have a lot of it or a little of it, is what God prescribes through his word. So what? So we've already driven at a lot of application here because that's what the Proverbs do. But let me reiterate just three things. First, parents, raise your children in godly wisdom. One of the biggest reasons we give, or God gives us temporary earthly things is to teach our children to trust the Lord with them. Whatever you have, whether a lot or a little, God has given to you in order to instruct your children, or you could say to instruct anyone in the body of Christ what wise, godly living looks like. This is not condescension. It's living according to God's word. One of the biggest reasons that he gives us homes and bank accounts, everything that we have is so that we could use these things in the ways that he prescribes, not in the ways that we want. Sometimes we make these things goals, but again, our goals should be faithful, wise use of stuff, not the stuff itself. Our homes are places for, to invite people into, reflecting the reality that we are welcomed into God's family through Jesus Christ. Our financial resources are given to us, not to shove in an untouchable accounts, but, but to pour out generosity on others, contributing to the needs of others and to the mission of the church, just like God did not withhold from us, but generously gave his son for us. Our kids are learning from us. The men and women around you, if you're, if you're advanced in, in, in years, the men and women who are younger than you are around you, are learning from you. How are you using what God has given you in this season of life? Are you serving temporary material wealth or are you wisely using it to serve others in God? The second thing here is temporary things satisfy temporarily, eternal things satisfy eternally. We said that multiple times earlier. But don't be deceived because whatever temporary thing you have your eye on, that thing will quickly fade. God gives himself freely to us and brings us to himself through Jesus Christ. And an eternal, infinite, God, overflowing with goodness and kindness and love for us, everything that you have and everything that you want in this temporary realm can't get close to touching what God provides in his unending quantities in eternity. Don't be deceived. Whatever you have on your eye on that's temporary in this world that you think might begin to satisfy that desire that you have, will quickly fade. Final thing. It's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is where we started. This is the resurrection of Jesus Christ that ensures that we can live righteous lives, making wise and proper use of temporary things. The resurrection of Jesus Christ 
is that which ensures that we can live righteous lives, making wise and proper use of temporary things. If Jesus was not raised, then it makes perfect sense for us to go hard after temporary things, making them our goals. Because there are no eternal guarantees. If Jesus is still in the grave, then there are no eternal guarantees. Jesus, though, died for the forgiveness of our sins. He paid for our sin and made a way for us to have access to our Creator God. And the forg- this forgiveness is for everyone who turns from their sins and trusts Jesus. And when Jesus walked out of the grave, there was an assurance that we will one day too walk out of the grave. Not one person who is in Him will remain in the ground. Jesus is alive. Eternal life is ours. And so we're able to hold whatever we have in this temporary realm in its proper place. How? That's what we just considered. By living righteously, not stealing or swindlingly, but trusting God to satisfy us. And when we trust God to satisfy us, we work with the things that are given to us diligently in His ways, and we work prudently in His timing knowing that it is from His hand that we prosper and that what we receive is according to His wisdom for us to use to reflect that wisdom. So friends, may we be a people who who seek to use temporary things with eternity in mind. Would the wisdom of God be reflected in us as individuals and as a church? And would our lives bear witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ and how we use what he's given to us in the here and now. Let's pray. God, we thank you. We thank you for how you have richly blessed us as people. God, for the things that we have, even as a church, this facility that we we have, that you've given to us. God, for the pews that we're sitting in, for the shoes that are on our feet, for the clothes that we put on this morning, for the concrete sidewalks and for the cars that we drove here. God, for the houses that we live in. God, for everything that you've given to us that we possess. Now, God, would we as a people reflect wise use of these things? God, would we reflect wise living in the way that we work? Working according to your word, not according to our ways. Working in your timing, not according to ours. God, would we desire to glorify you in everything that we say, everything that we do this week? God, would you cause us to see every action and activity that we, that we participate in this week as an opportunity to reflect you to the world? God, we thank you for these opportunities. Give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear as we go from here. God, and we thank you for Jesus. His righteousness credited to us in order that we might live according to your word. Lives of righteousness, wholly pleasing to you, our creator, our master, and our king. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.